0: Hey, all Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes. Check us out on Stitcher. We're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy
1: 2019. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around. Locked tonight, put your fat bags on Join me home
0: Hey, this is Oscar Dahl, I'm here with Matthew Knutsen, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown Number 62 American Graffiti And for all you AFI Top 100 Conspiracy Theorists out there Who think that this whole goddamn thing is rigged <laughs> And I know there are some of you, maybe half a dozen or so out there
2: And you're not wrong
0: Yeah, you're not wrong, because this movie is number 62 and it takes place in 1962. And uh, that's probably the most important thing about this movie is that it takes place in 1962. So what say you, Matt? Do you buy into this conspiracy theory I just created?
2: I love it when a plan works out this way. The very famous tagline for this film, Where Were You in 62, just warms my heart to think that it's at this place in the list. I am just going to go out and say it. This is one of my favorite films of all time. This is probably one of my top 20, maybe top 15 favorite films of all time depending on my mood.
0: I'll spoil it too. This is not one of my top 20 favorite movies of (laughs) all time. Probably not my top 200.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize this is going to be such a big disagreement. All right. Well, it let's might, get into it. Might,
0: it might crack my top 2,000. I'd have to crunch those numbers, though. So we'll see.
2: This is the best movie George Lucas ever directed. Come on. Yep. It's a fact. So this movie fell from 77 on the original list to 62, or climbed, rather. Climbed from <laughs> 77 to 62.
0: It's just uh, as the years pass by, the nostalgia, the member berries get uh, ripened. I mean,
2: this it's significant that the film takes place in 62. Two and came out in '73, so it wasn't exactly talking about ancient history, nostalgia-wise. By the time it came out, but I, I was thinking, you know, you can't watch this movie without without drawing connections to Days of Confused, obviously, right? Yes, that film came out in 1993, but took place in 1976. So the distance between when American Graffiti. To, takes place and when it came out as 11 years between when Days to Confuse took place and when it came out as 17 years so i'm thinking you know if if we extrapolate this arithmetic out it's about time that we get our 1990s cruising high school movie right like it's about time we get a movie yeah. set in 1998 99 maybe y2k people cruising around Seattle you know wearing <laughs> flannel and stuff
0: yeah I mean, need to start writing that movie yeah you do um I mean Jonah Hill tried that last year right
2: it's it's an interesting point although I think that um these movies prove that the best possible way to tackle a subject matter like this is over the course of a single night
0: do we have a good I was trying to think of this do we have a good 80s analog for graffiti and then days and confused I
2: feel like that's a bit of a hole as well I mean there might be people out there screaming and tearing their hair at right now thinking of something that we're missing but uh, no I can't think of a of a you know 80s cruising movie that takes place over the course of one night I mean of course there's many I icon- but then again, that would have it would have needed to be a film that takes place in the '80s, but was made in like the late '90s, and it would need to be a high school movie as well. I mean, I think there, I think that's a whole. Okay, so let's just do a double feature. You know, let's just yeah. let's make a movie that uh, takes place in the late '80s and a movie that takes place in the late '90s as a sequel.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I was thinking about Fast Times at Richmond High, and obviously, it's it's yeah. This is not the analog because it was made. It was it was current. contemporaneous. Yeah. Yeah, but. It's the most sort of 80s hangout feel, even though it doesn't take place over one night. It, I mean, it is sort of the same vibe as these kind of movies, but sure. I don't know. I, I wonder what a good 80s version of this would be. I mean, you could go a bunch of different directions.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what the comp would be. You know, like obviously in the 60s, it was, it was cruising and then... I guess in the late 70s it was yeah you know a smoking circle or whatever right but I mean there's still plenty there's still plenty of cruising sure. going. I guess it was the the keg party you know like it was the it was the party at the moon tower days of, I mean American Graffiti is not particularly boozy there is one subplot that involves Charles Martin Smith attempting to get booze and then being somewhat overserved but that's pretty much it I mean there's so much car culture there's so much emphasis on driving and racing that I suppose. I mean, I'm not saying that kids in the 60s oh, were
0: drinking and driving more than any, uh, you yeah, know, than we are today.
2: And and they and in the postscript they mention the fact that John Milner, you know, killed by a drunk driver. But yeah, this movie's not particularly interested in uh, drugs or alcohol necessarily. And it, whereas Dazed and Confused puts it right there on Front Street. They're
0: just innocent kids, innocent baby boomers, hanging out in the 60s. Not you know, they're not rebellious. They're just going with the flow. Everything's hunky dory. Uh, it's a lost time, an innocent time, man.
2: But goddamn, are they uh, car crazy? This is this is a movie for gearheads, and and I'm actually surprised that that I have such an affection for this movie because I am not remotely a gearhead. I think that skips a generation because my dad was was and is crazy about cars. I mean, my dad was John Milner when he was in high school, or, or at least that's okay. probably how he thought of himself. I'm not sure if he drove a Deuce Coupe. <laughs> But yeah. uh, he he was just car crazy his entire life. He already had bought his car before he even had his um, driver's license. Whereas I could really care less. For me, a car was always a way to get from point A to point B. How about yourself? Are you a gearhead? No. So
0: I mean, you don't strike me as one. No, n- not at all. I, c- I could care less. Uh, my car that I'm driving right now is on the fritz, and I'm just trying to make it survive. And I you know I have no idea what's wrong with it.
2: At least you've got one. That makes you more of a gearhead than me.
0: That's a, it's a recent <laughs> uh, recent thing because I got a commute now, but. Uh, sure. no no I think part of the reason this movie doesn't really appeal to me and I haven't you know I, I'm just kind of neutral on it I, I've never it's never struck me as anything special even since the beginning and it's you know I'm I'm anti cars I don't really give a shit about cars at all and I think people who do are kind of crazy I'm anti- nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Like, I, I, really, yeah. I really don't care for any sort of faux nostalgia. And I'm especially anti baby boomer nostalgia. And I'm anti baby boomers in general these days. <laughs> so, all right, yeah. So, like, oh
2: yeah, that deck is certainly stacked against this. It movie. It is stacked sure. against
0: this movie, and of course, I'm not immune to its charms. It's it's a, certainly just a fun hangout movie. But in terms of it being some cultural landmark, some milestone, uh, I, I I can't really get there because you know I I just it, it, it doesn't do it for me. There's nothing in this movie that that appeals to me greatly. Although I understand its its importance, and in a vacuum, this movie doesn't do it for me, right? But I understand the sort of contextual elements that that make it such a such a standout. Again, I I think the key question when when talking about the the legacy of this movie is, if it hadn't been directed by the guy who ended up doing Star Wars, and it hadn't launched careers of Richard Dreyfus and Ron Howard and Harrison Ford, would this movie still have maintained? Would this still be a landmark film or would it be just a sort of forgettable little outlier from the, from the seventies.
2: Okay. So let me see if I can, uh, crystallize the question that you're asking. <laughs> you're saying if, if we had never, if we had never heard of any of these people again, like you said, if this movie just had to be viewed in a vacuum, yes. if, if all these people had gotten on a plane and while they were flying to the premiere, they all got in a crash and they never made another movie again. Yeah. Uh, would we care about this movie and what it's trying to say and how it's saying it? Yes. And I think the answer is yes because I am not taken or all that interested in the nostalgia factor or of course I'm always interested in the legacy of the people involved with a film but I do try and watch these things as much as I can in a vacuum and then afterwards I go on Wikipedia and I make a bunch of notes and stuff like that but while I'm watching it I try to just let the movie live and try to just let it wash over me to the best of my ability and I just am always struck by the fact that I grin ear to ear throughout this entire movie and that I find it to be such an incredible pleasure. And I feel like it never slows down. There's no low points. There's no bad scenes. There's no scenes that I would want to fast forward through. Um, I just beam every time I watch this movie. I watch it at least a couple times a year, and uh, I just find it to be one of the most pleasurable cinematic experiences. You're talking about a bunch of really, really talented people who were caught at a very significant formative age, and were all very young and fresh-faced, sort of excited and excitable, and maybe they were catching lightning in a bottle to a certain extent. We've obviously seen most of the people in this cast go on to do incredible thing so I guess you put that many talented people together in one film and inevitably you're always going to look back on this as like a launching point right and you could say the same thing about Daisy Confused now what's interesting about these films is oftentimes you get people who look like they're on the verge of breaking <laughs> out or they look like they might you know a star might be being born and they end up becoming nothing.
0: The London twin, Jeremy London, right?
2: Yeah, although he has kind of, he has a more difficult role because he kind of has to be the de facto protagonist and he has to be everything to everybody. Yeah. He doesn't really have a comp in this movie. There isn't really a Randy Pink Floyd in the American Graffiti universe, but what is kind of refreshing about this movie is that there aren't really classes, right? There aren't really like lines between cliques. The fact that John Milner and Terry the Toad can be you know, the best of buddies, despite the fact you've got one guy who's a hot rodder and one guy who is empirically, and they call him this many times in the movie, just a big dork yeah. who rides around in a Vespa. The fact that they're such close buds that Milner will just take the toad with him when he goes out for the drag race on Paradise Road at the end. That's kind of refreshing.
0: I mean, isn't that kind of similar to Randy Pink Floyd though? Isn't that, that he's he's friends with the football guys, he's friends with the Stoners, he's friends with everyone.
2: But in that context, you, you have more of these groups. Now, granted, that, that movie does take place at a high school party and you actually and you are seeing the groups, and yes, there is overlap. In this one, high school is done, we're graduated, it's the last night of summer, we're about to go to college. We're not with the exception of like the sock hop scene. We're not really dealing so much exclusively with the you know insular high school world. So maybe if this movie had taken place three months earlier, then yes, maybe we would have seen those divides. But there aren't you know like you don't have like Nikki Cat you know picking a fight with Adam Goldberg for example, right? No, you don't. Well, I mean, I, I guess you got a couple of tough guys who steal Toad's car at one point and then beat him up, and milner has got to come to his rescue. Yeah, I know,
0: I and mean, maybe that's part of my some of my issues with the movie is that this movie feels unrealistic in its depiction of a hunky dory world that probably didn't really exist right and i you know i I went back and read a bunch of reviews of people at the time and it is baby boomers talking about their baby boomer nostalgia but i don't know like this is in the middle of the civil rights movement this is the middle of the vietnam war like nothing it couldn't have been that idyllic right we don't see them talking about you know, them being against bussing black kids in the school or not inviting black kids out to Mel's or them, you know, I I, I just feel like they they sort of rounded the edges a little bit about the time period in a way that sort of makes, makes the viewer feel all warm and fuzzy inside.
2: I think that's fair, but it is also intentionally set in 62 and not 69, you know, like it is isn't intentionally set like right before this stuff really explodes. And I just rewatched the sequel over the weekend in preparation for this. More American Graffiti, not a good movie, but it's a fascinating movie because it's set over the course of four years, but it's a single it's a single day in four sequential years. So it's it's New Year's Eve sixty four, New Year's Eve sixty five, New Year's Eve sixty six, and New Year's Eve sixty seven. So it's over the course of four years, and so we we get right into all the things you're talking about, civil rights movement. Vietnam War anti-war protest. Now, none of this solves the problem that you're having with with this particular movie with the original, mm-hmm. and that's fair. But I also think that it's intentionally set in the West Coast, and it's you know semi-autobiographical about Lucas because he came from this very insular West Coast California town where they were probably cocooned from a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah. This movie's not taking place in Detroit, in Brooklyn. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bunch of white kids in a Northern California suburb, basically. I mean, I, I think it's shot in Petaluma, but I think it's I think it's uh, supposed to be Santa Rosa sure. where Lucas grew is up. Is it supposed to be right? Modesto? Or no, Modesto. Modesto. It's yeah. supposed to be Modesto. Yeah, they shot it in Petaluma,
0: though. I guess what I'm getting at, and maybe this is hard to explain, but it, it sort of chafes me when I, when I read all these reviews and everyone hearkening back to, like, this movie is about... The eve before we lost our innocence as a nation, when it's really like you know we were just putting our heads in the sand. It's not like this was a great time in America, right?
2: If you were if you were seventeen, it was probably it looks like a pretty damn good time to me. Yeah, I, that, I,
0: I know, you know, but you know, ignoring more bigger problems. I mean, this is me getting on like a political high horse here. I don't need to. <laughs> I don't mean to keep rattling on about it, but. I don't know. It's just my issue with sort of boomer nostalgia and things were better back in the day and like they, they objectively were not. And so let's, let's not pretend that, you know, we want to travel back in time to this, this, this great period when it wasn't all that great to begin with.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm less interested in kind of like the social or political implications of when it's set. Like I'm not that interested in 62 necessarily. I think it's an interesting time period to set this in because of the cars and because of the dress and because of the music especially but I'm more interested in kind of like the resonant and resonating relationships between you know like the kinds of stories and the kinds of relationships and the kinds of emotions and feelings that people who are this age have had throughout all of history right and that's why you can see so much overlap in something like dazed and confused and so much you know sort of thematic consistency with these two films that are dealing with a lot of the same subject matter and succeed for a lot of the same reasons. Yeah. So for me, this movie is just all about character, and I am personally pretty darn interested in every single one of them. I mean, this movie has a sprawling ensemble. That's one of the reasons that nobody wanted to make it because people in 1973, a couple of years earlier, when they were shopping around trying to develop it, you know, executives couldn't wrap their brain around how you were going to tackle an ensemble piece like this, especially with a bunch of no-name actors. Yeah, it's pretty unprecedented in that regard. But this is also something that became more commonplace in the '70s, partly because of this film and Altman, you know, doing more mm-hmm. film, you know, more of these ensemble kinds of movies. And
0: no, I mean th- that is the stuff that I'm more interested in and appreciative of when it comes to this movie is is the way it sort of it, it, it was not of the time right it was it was really a big part of the new hollywood stuff and you know movies weren't made like this and you know i appreciate whatever impact this sort of ensemble piece had in movie making going forward and and and, and that's great i mean it, it sort of did lay a template for these kind of movies that both you and i have spoken about at length of of loving this kind of movie
2: yeah i mean it's be it's become Cliche to the point of being obnoxious. Uh, American, you know, cinephiles mythologizing the 1970s and the New Hollywood movement as being maybe the the greatest yeah. decade in American cinematic history. But you know, it's exciting that a movie like this that has a pretty good heart and that is pretty light and and pretty whimsical in its own way can still be breaking ground and saying interesting things and you know, inventing interesting techniques in a decade that was kind of defined by dark, cynical, you know, by Chinatown and, mm-hmm. you know, taxi driver and stuff, right? Yeah. You could, you could have this very kind of like light on its feet, teen romp that still feels relevant this many years later. And, uh, you know, it was nominated for best picture at the time and is a part of the, you know, was added to the American film register or the national film registry in 1995. And, holds a pretty decent spot on uh, both versions of the AFI Top 100 list.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you say it's George Lukes' best film. Like, how do you- I do. H- I believe that. How do you figure that he became such a worse writer as he got older? <laughs> and, and Do, do you um, credit the, 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 the co-screenwriters of, the, of this movie? I guess you have to.
2: I do very much. Glor- William and Gloria Hike, I think their name. They also wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I think Part of why this script works so well is that they actually had quite a bit of time to be able to develop it. They had many years. Part of the problem, which ended up being kind of an asset, was that they couldn't find, they couldn't get this thing set up anywhere, so they just kept, they, you know, kept getting to just massage this thing and develop it and sort of sharing stories and talking to each other and passing the script back and forth. It seems like just a lot of people were able to add their voice to this story which ordinarily sounds like that might be a recipe for disparate storytelling but I think in this regard because you have so many different characters being represented like this I think it actually helped. I just like younger Lucas. Like I like THX 1138 a lot.
0: Star Wars is pretty good, man.
2: Yeah, I mean he directed his his three best movies in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm.
0: No love for Attack of the Clone. No,
2: no, I don't have, I I don't have love for the last three films he directed, I'm sorry.
0: No one does, no one should.
2: But yeah, I mean, obviously I'm going to have to defend myself in saying that this is a better movie than Star Wars. I just, I just care more about the characters. I find the story more interesting. I find the film more rewatchable, you know, more fun, more visually interesting. I mean, it's just, you know, I I guess I'm just more into kind of ground level storytelling. I'm not criticizing, you know, uh, special effects dependent storytelling. There's a time and a place for for that, and I love Star Wars as as much as the next guy, but I'd much rather see Harrison Ford, you know, piloting his 55 Chevy as opposed to the... um to the Millennium Falcon. I know that makes me and makes I know, I know that's blasphemy to say that out loud. So,
0: do you think this is a better movie than Days and Confused? Yes, I do.
2: I do think it's a better movie than Days and Confused, which I know is is going to be you know it's a tough thing for people of our generation to hear. I don't know if if George Lucas is a better filmmaker than Richard Linkletter n- necessarily. Richard Linkletter's had a much more interesting and diverse career than Lucas ever did. Lucas is obviously more financially successful, but you know, I would concede that Linkletter is probably a better writer director than Lucas is. Yeah. But I uh, yes, I do think this is a better movie.
0: I don't know. Like I, I think about Days of Confused and I think of it's it's all about rebellion and where you fit in and initiation and all this stuff. And you know, American Graffiti does have elements of that, but it just seems Quaint, and the stakes seem lower in American Graffiti. And I know that's part of the point, right? Is like it's a it's a more innocent time. So grappling with should I go to college or not, or stay in town and get a job and keep cruising?
2: Yeah, well, maybe it's about the first stakes. Maybe it's about the first time that you are faced with legitimate stakes. Yeah, you know, like the first time you are forced to make a decision. Do I do I go back east for school, or do I stay here with the woman who manned up? Being the love of my life and the mother of my children. Yeah, right. Like, is staying back is staying with Lori more important than losing Lori.
0: But you know, I watch these movies as this you know cynical man in his mid thirties. I'm like, of course you go to college. You gotta get out of that small town. Get the hell out of <laughs> well, there. Well, that's you're you're 17, 18. Go see the world, you idiot.
2: Well, that's what Kurt. Like, they switch they switch spots, know, that's right? And in the, in the opening story scene, thing. like I, it I, is. It's really nice. I
0: like that. But but all the other, I mean, besides that, like those those are the most difficult decisions in the movie. The rest is pretty just hang out. I'm trying to get laid. I want to race this car. I have to deal with this 12 year old. Uh, <laughs> I want to, I want to bone Sus- Suzanne Summers. Like, you know,
2: <laughs> that's an easy decision to make. Yeah. I mean, you, you're four main guys, Kurt Bolander, Steve, I'm sorry, Kurt Henderson, Steve Bolander, Terry, the toad fields, and John Milner. Lucas describes those four characterizations as like four aspects of his personality evolution from, like, freshman in high school to, like, senior in college. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> he, he said that he kind of, like, identifies with all four of those characters, so they, I guess they do become kind of splintered parts of his personality.
0: George Lucas is sort of a, you know, punching bag these days. It's, you know, people make fun of him, and, and rightly so for, for the prequels. But, man, this guy was such a great conceptual thinker early on in his filmmaking days you know yep that's always the way he's been even the prequels like there's a lot of good ideas buried in that pile of shit uh, that he wasn't able to sort of bring above the 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 poor execution but you know the idea to do this hangout movie something that really hadn't been done with an ensemble obviously star wars is a just is an absolute triumph of concept and then you go into indiana jones stuff which is you know mostly or partly his idea depending on you know what you think and how much you've you know listened to the (laughs) the note-taking sessions that were released a few years back but this guy really is a pioneer, whether you like his you know, recent output or not. It, it is unfortunate that his legacy is going to be more or less tarnished by, by the prequels.
2: Well, I can't help but yearn for an alternate reality, an alternate history, wherein he never made Star Wars. And yeah. he kept making movies like American Graffiti. You know, like, again, I know this is blasphemy, but this is the only movie set in quote-unquote reality that Lucas ever made, right? Yeah. He made THX 1138, which is kind of a dystopian, you know, Orwellian uh science fiction uh fable. And then he does this, and then he does Star Wars, and then he does the three prequels and and that's it directorially.
0: Yeah, it, I mean it does feel like the kind of guy he is and what we saw with the prequels and everything leading up to that, success was going to ruin him one way or another. (laughs) Right? Doesn't that kind of seem inevitable? We should all be
2: so lucky to be so ruined. I
0: know. Ruined by the billions (laughs) that, that come in. So, I don't know. Maybe if he... If there was a sort of middle ground, he could have kept a, a tightrope. He could have walked throughout his career where he wasn't too successful and had to keep pushing himself to make, you know, different and interesting movies. But I don't know. It does feel like the people around him in New Hollywood were just a little more talented when it came to actual execution.
2: What an exciting time to be around and to be get coming out of film school, you know, there in the late 60s, early 70s, and to have somebody like Coppola on your side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like Coppola really took Lucas under his wing and just believed in him and saw his shorts and just wanted to be in business and the things these guys were doing with American Zoetrope. It just sounds really fun and exciting and you know, hanging out in San Francisco and and Marin County, basically having Coppola say, you know, what are you into? What's on your mind? What kind of films do you want to make? Like, I'll help you, I'll underwrite you, I'll help you raise the money, I'll give you the money myself. Yeah, God, I would love to, have, you know, to have that. Just, you gotta that find kind of, your Coppola. Man. That kind of support, <laughs> I know. And and this is basically Coppola saying. Look, man, I loved THX 1138. A lot of people love THX 1138. It's groundbreaking, and someday people will catch up to you, but it was a flop, and you need to be thinking about what you can make that can help make this company some money. So here is my challenge to you. Give me a fun, feel-good entertainment as opposed to you know heavy, conceptually ambitious sci-fi. Yeah. And this is Lucas saying, all right, this is my attempt at doing something quote-unquote fun and light. And this is what he comes up with, a fucking masterpiece that gets nominated for Best Picture and ends up, I mean, this movie made $150 million on an $800,000 budget if you adjust that for inflation that's more like 600 million which basically makes it about the 50th highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation one of the most one of the most profitable movies ever made
0: it's crazy to think about this movie which is a you know period piece nostalgia piece being made only 11 years after you know the events take place i mean
1: mm-hmm.
0: what would a movie that was set in 2008 seem like it seem <laughs> i mean we've made more like technological advancements the world has probably cha- well i don't know if the world's changed more but it, it wouldn't feel aesthetically all that different from what's from, from something today. Right.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's why perhaps you're getting hung up on the nostalgia factor because we are so far removed from 62 now in 73, even though there was all these, all this great music that people were probably like, Oh my God, I had the most wonderful dance at the sock hop to that song. They probably weren't necessarily, you know, like what are we really into nowadays? We're really into nostalgia for the eighties, right? Everybody's sure. all about stranger things and stuff now. That's thirty years ago. Yeah, in nineteen seventy-three, I'm sure. I'm sure boomers were like, "Oh man, it was so f- much fun being in high school and cruising around." But I'm not sure if it was necessarily quite as dramatic as what you're is what you're making it out to be. Like you're saying, two thousand eight. Do you, do we look back at two thousand eight nostalgically? We might hear a song from ten or eleven years ago and be and remember what we were doing when we first heard that song, or it it represented a, a certain activity or a certain trip or a certain relationship, maybe.
0: You know, you look at the reviews, like I said, uh, innocence was about to be lost. And, you know, putting aside even, you know, the acceleration of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and the draft and JFK assassination, all that stuff. I wonder how much a part music does play into this nostalgia thing because music from 62 to 73 changed exponentially. It changed, it was a crazy evolution from from then with rock and roll and Beatles and Summer Love and all that stuff.
2: I mean, an argument could be made that music from 62 to 72 might be the most, maybe the most important era in popular music history. Yeah, uh, no, I mean... Not to sound too much like John Cusack from High Fidelity. No, I mean, that's... You know, between the British invasion and everything. I think that's
0: absolutely the case. I don't don't think you'd find much argument from anybody about that because it would lay the groundwork for everything coming in the 70s and the 80s. That is, to me, the highlight of this movie, actually, is just the The soundtrack soundtrack throughout that never stops and, you know, keeps playing the hits. I, I think it's a big part of why this is such a easy fun watch uh no matter you know what you feel about the ultimate merits of the movie like you know there's it's just a it really is a pleasant experience sitting down for two hours and hanging out in
2: this movie well plus at the risk of curdling the evergreen nature of these aFI podcasts you know what have we been talking about what's the film everybody's been talking about all summer in which the radio is is perennially on for the entire film I don't
0: know What movie
2: <laughs> once upon a time in Hollywood oh yeah of course. <laughs> which is of course about a different kind of loss of innocence and, the, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and the end of you know the end of of this decade that's being represented in this film sure and I just as as many problems as I have with that movie I do love that device of mm-hmm. basically just leaving a radio on for the end of you know tarantino had kind of he did before uh, use that to very good effect in, in reservoir dogs right and so wolfman jack he, he's um functioning the same way that stephen wright did in reservoir dogs now wolfman jack was a real guy and there's actually a, a scene in this film where we confront him and, yeah. and have a conversation with him and he gives one of our main characters some advice it's actually a really great scene
0: someone should make a cut of american graffiti with all of wolfman jack's lines replaced by stephen wright <laughs> I love it. (laughs)
2: That's an excellent idea. Uh, The soundtrack to this movie is legendary for good reason. It's incredible. It's wall-to-wall amazingness. And basically, the deal they came up with in order to be able to still... You know, to be able to acquire these songs while still making this film for less than a million dollars, they just made blanket deals with the different uh, record companies. So instead of going after individual songs, they just made deals with the record labels themselves.
0: Did they they say like the soundtrack, we're not taking any of it, it's all going to you or something?
2: I'm not exactly sure. I mean, Lucas has obviously proven himself to be a genius in terms of how he engineers these deals over the years. Yeah. The story that I heard was that they didn't have to license the songs individually, they just licensed basically the entire a library of a, of a record label and ended up being cheaper to do it that way. Makes sense. The problem with that was they couldn't afford whatever label Elvis Presley was on. Gotcha. So that's why Elvis Presley is so conspicuously absent from this movie. But other than that, it's an you know, it's a very, very comprehensive soundtrack, I think. And the way that the great Walter Murch, genius editor and uh, sound designer, yeah. who would, of course, go on to do The Conversation the next year and you know, Apocalypse Now eventually, the way that he weaves the radio waves in through the narrative of this movie is just so elegant and so effective you always can kind of like feel exactly how far you are at any given time from the nearest radio right when yeah when richard dreyfus is running around in uh, in some used car lot tying a, a wire to the back to the axle of a cop car or whatever, you, you it's almost as if you can feel exactly how far you are he is away from the nearest radio. Mm-hmm. Right? Whether it's in a you know it's in a nearby um, store or it's a car passing by. I mean the way they you know the way they work the left to right stereo panning, it's just all very sophisticated for such a for such a tiny little movie. And you could say the same thing for Verna Fields and Marsha Lucas's editing techniques. Mm-hmm. Verna Fields, of course, would go on to do Jaws Marsha Lucas, of course, Lucas's wife, who was one of the many editors on Star Wars. The first cut of this film was apparently almost four hours long because Lucas had this very regimented A, B, C, D cutting pattern where he wanted to go. If you consider each one of the four main characters as A, B, C, or D, he wanted to revisit their individual plots linearly, right? Yeah, yeah. So you'd see Kurt, then you'd see Steve, then you'd see Toad, then you'd see Milner you know, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And when Verna Fields and Marshall Lucas got their hands on this thing, and when Universal made it clear that they needed to get this thing down to a manageable size if they wanted to release it, working with Walter Murch's sound design to make this thing flow so smoothly. And it really is just such a, such a smooth ride. I mean, it just feels like a cruise.
0: I've been railing against this boomer nostalgia stuff. And again, I'm, I'm very anti-nostalgia. But I will say, of all the things in this movie, the sort of lack of cell phones really is hammered <laughs> home for me. Like, it It does seem so fun to just sort of try to find people and like have have a night out, hang out with your friends, be kind of a game and randomly running into people and talking to people through your cars like that's that seems that seems fun. That seems fine. Yeah. I wonder how accurate the whole, you know, cruising up next to somebody and having conversations between cars on Main Street really, really was how often that happened. But it does seem like a good time.
2: And just how over the course of the night people just end up in each other's cars. They get picked up here. They get dropped off there. They walk down the street. They get picked up somewhere else. I mean, the only real danger comes with the introduction of the pharaohs, right? Yeah. But it's, but it's pretty silly. Like, it's silly almost immediately. And so you never really feel like Kurt Henderson is, is in any real danger but it is like the one moment in the film when there's like a little bit of edge
0: they're no warriors or anything they're pretty (laughs) uh, pretty tame little gang they got going there
2: I just love the I just love the whole Pharaoh sequence I find it to be so funny
0: you got any more more notes anything you wanna you wanna touch on before we close up shop
2: yeah I'll just dance through really quickly I won't take up too much of your time Uh, the opening scene all the main characters are introduced either driving in their vehicles or standing next to their vehicles Mm -hmm. so of course it opens at Mel's Drive-In which was a real place in San Francisco the first thing you see is Terry the Toad uh, driving up on his Vespa. He drives past Steve Ballander, who's standing next to his 58 Impala. And then John Milner drives up in his iconic 32 Deuce Coupe. And then uh, Lori comes driving around in her 58 Ford Edsel. And Kurt Henderson drives up in his Citrone 2 2CV. Each one of those individual conveyances... Just says so much about each individual character, right? Like you learn so much about every character before they even open their mouth.
0: For a non-car guy, that kind of stuff is is hard to pick up.
2: I don't know anything about those individual cars. I just looked those up. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know the history of any of them, and those 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 uh, years don't mean anything to me. But just the aesthetics of those individual cars. And the way that each character, particularly a Vespa, you yeah, the know, Vespa I know. or, or a, that 32 Deuce Coupe, I know is, is an iconic car. I don't think about it. But the fact that his engine is exposed, that it's bright fucking yellow. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're, you're learning, you know, you're, you're getting aesthetic clues about who John Milner is and what he represents. Right. Of course. I mean, it's just good. It's just good, easy, simple, straightforward visual filming.
0: Yeah, this movie gets into it really quick. And the exposition's really nice. I was thinking, watching the movie, like, man, if I was a car guy. Like this movie would mean so much more to me, like it'd be Cat it be its yeah. pretty much car porn I, w- I would assume for people who are big into those that era, right
2: and, and that, I'm sure that probably contributed to why it ended up appealing to so many boomers, yeah uh, because that that was that was really important to them in the sixties for a number of reasons Love their cars and then the aforementioned fifty five Chevy, which is driven by Bob Falfa, played by Harrison Ford, just one of the all time great villains. <laughs> Played by a guy who would become synonymous with being heroic. Yeah, the fact that he basically bursts onto the scene because this is the year before. No, this is the year after the conversation. I'm sorry. I. I, I no, no. This is the year before. This conversation seventy four. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he hasn't even done the conversation yet. He's obviously years away from apocalypse now, or Star Wars. He's got a pretty significant role in this movie. Yeah. And and he he is the villain. He he is he is the one villain in this movie. With the you know unless you want to count the uh you know the beat cops or whatever. And he's
0: and he's doing like a midwestern southern accent. I'm not, not really sure <laughs> I don't know what he, he's doing. It seems like he kind of waffles in between, right? Like the beginning, it seems sort of Minnesotan, and then he goes to sort of the south a little later on. It's charming nonetheless.
2: I I don't know what the hell it is, but. <laughs> He's he's just so funny. Like he just makes such an impression. You're just like, oh yeah, look at that guy. That's a fucking movie star. Yeah. Like I don't even I don't know what he's doing, but I can't take my eyes off him. I know. And that might be my favorite. You know, I wrote down a handful of scenes. We don't need to get into all of them because I know they they're not quite as meaningful to you. But um, but maybe my maybe <laughs> yeah. my favorite. I'll indulge scene you, in the whole, man.
0: I'll indulge you. You can listen. You know, up. I just I,
2: well, I mean, I just wrote down things like encountering Suzanne Summers in the <laughs> in her Ford T Bird. Yeah you know, Kurt meets the Pharaohs, Kurt meets the Wolfman, Terry picks up Debbie at uh, the Paradise Road drag race at sunrise is wonderful. But I, my favorite scene in the movie is when Milner and Bob Falfa encounter one another. And Mackenzie Phillips is sitting in the, in the catbird seat. And she just has this huge shit eating grid. Like she just can't contain herself. She finds this so fucking entertaining to hear <laughs> these two guys a, having a pissing contest. <laughs> yeah, Paul Lamatt and Harrison Ford are just Fucking dynamite. Like, I just love that rivalry. It makes me so happy. Apparently, the reason that he's wearing, that Harrison Ford is wearing the cowboy hat is because he refused to cut his hair for the film. <laughs> Lucas wanted him to cut his hair so it would be air appropriate. He refused. So the compromise was that he'd wear a cowboy hat for the whole movie.
0: I like that, you know, he's not a movie star. He's, he's he's a nobody, but he still uh, puts his foot down. It, it, it kind of makes sense for for it kind of defined we, his career. What we know about <laughs> like,
2: Ford. Yeah. it does very much so. And if you read if you read about the history of the of the making of this film, apparently Paul Lamatt, Harrison Ford, and Bo Hopkins, who plays the leader of the Pharaohs, were just absolute hellcats throughout this entire shoot. Like you know, just drinking every single night, getting kicked out of every single hotel the production put them up in. I mean, imagine partying with those guys in
0: 1972. <laughs> yeah, sounds awesome. The scene where uh, where he's getting the booze outside of the liquor store or whatever. The guy who eventually gets it for him, hands it to him and then runs away and the, the clerk comes out and shoots him. What what are we to imagine he did in there? He reached behind the counter to get the booze, but also did he steal some other stuff in the meantime? That seems always confused me.
2: I figured he held up the um, cashier, took money from the register, how he got his hands on that booze, considering that the booze is probably behind the cashier's head. Yeah. I mean, maybe he just pointed a gun at the cashier, said, give me everything that's in the register and hand me that bottle of old Harper. I guess he,
0: you know, he probably went up and said, Can kind I of get a bottle of old Harper. And then while there he's doing go. it, he, he, yeah. Okay. We figured it out. All right. We figured it out. That was yeah, easy. Good stuff.
2: Uh, that's a fun scene. Yeah. I lost my, I lost my ID in a flood. <laughs> yeah, I lost my wife too. Her name wasn't ID though. And it wasn't in a flood. Uh, Charles. Yeah. Charles Martin Smith is just adorable in this movie. Candy Clark, who plays his love interest, who was the only actor in this film, uh, Who was nominated for their performance? She's just fantastic. (laughs) Like just everything she says makes me laugh. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 written, you know, it's written to be a scene chewing role and it you know, it's kinda like the Mira Sorvino and Mighty Aphrodite kind of over the top ditz role, right? Yeah. So yeah, like I said, nominated for five Oscars nineteen seventy three. Of course, lost to the sting. And then the next year, Coppola goes on to, you know, win everything yeah. with The Godfather Part 2. So, yeah, I mean, this movie this movie lands smack dab right in between the two Godfather films and right before the conversation. So, it's a very good time to be on uh, Francis Ford Coppola's speed dial. Yeah, absolutely. During the making of this film, Richard Dreyfuss was 26. Ron Howard was 19. Paul Matt was 28. Charles Martin Smith was 20. Cindy Williams was 26. Candy Clark was 26 as well. Mackenzie Williams, I'm sorry, Mackenzie Phillips was 13 and Harrison Ford was 31.
0: Harrison Ford, you always forget he got a real late start.
2: Out there being a carpenter like Jesus. I know, what a stud. <laughs> that was a carpenter joke. He got right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were both carpenters. Ford decided to start his career right as Jesus was ending his, right? Uh, yeah,
0: 33, 31, <laughs> uh, right yeah, about yeah, there. Yeah, right around there. All right, so we're going to end on... Uh,
2: Han Solo is Jesus. It sounds like you're not a fan, and if it was up to you, this movie would not be on this no, list. Not even up in the eighties ni- or nineties.
0: No, I I am a fan of this movie. I, it just I don't really understand the people like you who put in their top twenty of all time. I, I I do think like the cultural impact is important, and the sort of launching pad for a lot of these careers is important. And George Lucas's film before Star Wars is important. You know, I enjoy the movie. I I, I just don't see it as like you know a, a top fifty of all. All time, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be opposed at all to this being somewhere in the '90s on this list. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm uh, an absolute hater of this movie, but boomer m- nostalgia rubs me the wrong way. It
2: sounds like you have some uh, some issues you need to work you know, <laughs> between you and the boomers that maybe you need to work out off mic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I do. You know, you just just thinking about how how little uh, Richard Dreyfus is going to pay for college and still thinking about not going, it's real frustrating <laughs> for, for a certain generation.
2: Well, it is interesting, having revisited More American Graffiti, the sequel, which, again, not good, but interesting. Yeah. Dreyfus is the only member of the original cast who didn't return for the sequel. Gotcha. That leads me to believe that the sequel was made in 1979, so this is obviously after Jaws, after Close Encounters, and after Dreyfus has won his Oscar for The Goodbye Girl. Yeah. So I guess he was just a too, uh, too big, good. He's a little too
0: big for his britches, yeah.
2: I, I, you know, I've watched this film probably twice in the last month, you know, watched the sequel, thought about it a lot, have been meaning to watch Dazed and Confused uh, to compliment this, just haven't gotten around to it yet. It's been on my mind a lot recently. And yeah, I can't get over the fact that we don't have the equivalent of this for high school kids of the 1980s or 1990s. So yeah, get on that Richard Linklater or or somebody, you know.
0: How about about you? How about us? Let's
2: do it. I've been thinking about it. I've I've never come up with something, I, I was much more social and college than I was in high school. Let's put it that way. So I, I would be much more inclined to make like a college movie that took place over the course of one night in like 2002 than I would to make a high school movie that was set in 1998, for example.
0: That makes sense,
2: but I do think about it. Yeah, and and now and now is the time because we are far enough removed from this where it is. I mean, we've we've been spending this entire year, and we're not the only ones sort of mythologizing the year 1999. So this is this stuff is very much part of the cultural conversation at the moment.
0: All right, Matt, that was number 62. We're making our way up the list. We have a couple oldies coming up here: Sullivan's Travels and then Duck Soup. Getting in the way back machine. You excited for those?
2: Yeah, it's nice to have a couple comedies in a row here. Mm-hmm. It lightens the mood a little bit.
0: All right, well. Until next time, this has been uh, We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown. This was number 62, American Graffiti,
2: aka George Lucas's best film. <laughs> oh,
0: say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye,
2: Matt.
1: They ask me how I knew my true. Nothing here inside cannot be denied they said someday Yeah